Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by the 2017 URM Summit, a once-in-a-lifetime chance to spend four days with the next generation of audio professionals and special guests, including Andrew Wade, Kane Churko, Billy Decker, Fluff, Brian Hood, and many more. The inspiration, ideas, and friendship you'll get here are the things that you'll look back on as inflection points in your life. Learn more at urmsummit.com. And now your host, A.L. Levy. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am A.L. Levy, and with me is someone who I have been trying to podcast with for, I think, almost <laughs> literally a year now. Something like that. Like, if I go back into the emails... They go back pretty far, at least six months. So, Mr. Romesh Jodangoda, thank you for being here. My pleasure. It's great to finally do it. Yeah, it's it's about time. For those of you who don't know who he is, you should know who he is. And I'm sure that you've, uh, you know his work, even if you don't know that you know his work. Um, he's the owner of Long Wave Recording Studio in Cardiff, Wales, where he's a producer and mixer. And he's worked with uh, bands like Bring Me the Horizon, Bullet for My Valentine, Attack and Tack. We've actually worked together on Monuments. Uh, he's worked with Kids in Glass Houses, has gotten to do great things like work at Abbey Road, mixing Bring Me the Horizon, live at Wembley. Uh, and he's a cool person who believes in educating up-and-coming engineers like uh i see him doing this online frequently uh inviting engineers to hang out at a studio for a day or going places and giving lectures so i i have a soft spot in my heart for modern engineers who do believe in educating people obviously <laughs> so uh Thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. It's great. I'm glad we're finally doing it. Yeah, and uh, you're at my favorite studio in L.A. and possibly the U.S. It's this. Yeah, I'm at Sphere Studios in L.A. and it's absolutely incredible here. It's kind of overkill for recording a podcast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think uh, Frank Frank uh, asked me like if I wanted an 87 or something, and my voice was like <laughs> a bit overkill. But yeah, no, it's a beautiful studio. Yeah, for those of you who have never seen it, just go to spherestudios.com. It's one of the most gorgeous studios ever, and their gear selection is... It's unbelievable. Un unbelievable, yeah. yeah. And and they have a nice shower, too, with robes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, it, now the mix subscribers will remember it from the Amur session. But uh, let's talk about you, not the studio. No. Um, so... How's LA? You've been traveling quite a bit. Didn't you just come from Australia also? Uh, New Zealand. So I, I got asked, New Zealand. I got asked okay. to do um, what's called a New, Ze New Zealand uh, producer series, which is they fly over um, a producer to basically uh, come and do a session, but they have um, students um, who come in on the course and they basically get to watch how I, you know, do a track from start to finish and I kind of break down, you know, everything I do. Um, it's, it was really fun. Like, everyone, you know, had a screen as well so they could see what I was doing. And, you know, I kind of got everyone involved in the session. So, like, I would kind of talk about, like, drum miking for me and stuff and then I'd actually get them to do it. Um so yeah, it was it was really great, and it was you know it's amazing you know to be able to ask to to go over there. 
Um, and then I did some like one-on-ones with them then on the last day where they played me. Um, they brought in sessions for me to have a look at and yeah, just kind of helping them as much as I can really. So, and this was in a university setting? Uh, no, this is in the is in the studios in Roundhead Studios. Um, oh, cool! Music. That's amazing. It's Neil Finn from Crowded House. Um, it's his studio. Um, they've got an amazing Neve there, and you know, again, another beautiful studio with loads of great gear. So, so um, this is just something that they do. They just uh, bring in producers to help educate people. Yeah, so it's um, it's a, a producer friend of mine uh, called Greg Haver, and he he runs it. Um, and yeah, I think this is the second time they've run it, um, but they're already looking to you know to do it again now. Um, I think you know it's great. It, it, I think like the students really got a lot out of it. Um, oh, a lot, sure. And and also it, they, it's kind of also for people who are already producers. It's kind of like helping them, you know level up again and you know there's there's a nice balance of people there so like you know some beginners not not beginners but like you know people who were trying to become a producer then there were also actual producers there as well how do you find the recording scene in new zealand um i i know that sometimes uh places that are far off the i mean you know i mean this with all due respect but a little far off the beaten path sometimes there's not the same amount of opportunity or not the same uh level yeah. of facilities well uh it's an interesting question though because i kind of spoke to a few people who like you know really impressed me and i was like you know so are you busy and they were saying that you know there's there's not a lot of work around because there's not that many rock bands you know um so I kind of like talked to them about it and I said, well, you know, you're a great mixer and maybe you can, you know, get some work in from, it doesn't have to be from New Zealand. You can mix any, you know, you can mix records from, you know, the, from anywhere. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know if it's, if there's a massive kind of recording thing going on there, but there's definitely some really great people out there. I, I've always wanted to go there. It's it's amazing. Like I kind of I went from Tokyo to New Zealand and the kind of difference was like crazy because Tokyo is just like, you know, absolutely you know, hectic place, and then New Zealand's just the future. Weird. Yeah, it is the future. Yeah. It blew my yeah, mind. It's, uh, it's Blade Runner. Yeah. Oh man, it's like I got out of the airport and I was just grinning. It's just like this is amazing. Oh yeah, I, I love it there. I feel like I'm on another planet. It's or stepped into a movie. Yeah. yeah it's unbelievable. Um, so, why did you go to Tokyo? Sorry, just, if I'm butting into your personal no, business. No, here, no, it's but. fine. It, it, just a stopover. I kind of, um, I thought if I'm kind of, I, I hate flying for like really long, you know, long time. So I kind of split the journey up a little bit. Um, and I thought, well, if I'm going that far around the world, I might as well kind of stop, you know, stop and visit. So it was, it was just, a, it was just a visit, really. Uh, you're literally going all the way around the I world, am, though. Yeah. So from My, England to Tokyo, Tokyo to New Zealand, New Zealand to LA, yeah, and LA and then, back to England. Yeah, I fly out tomorrow. Tomorrow afternoon, I fly out. Man, that, that sounds like a cool trip. My jet lag's so, gonna be awful when I get back. Yeah, you're gonna be hating life, <laughs> man. I got to tell you too, jet lag never used to affect me, but these days, I feel like it's an age thing for me because. Right. Like, Kind of like the whole thing with drinking, like when you're much younger, uh, hangovers aren't yeah, so yeah. bad. But now they're like, <laughs> now I just don't drink. I need to, because, I need to clear <laughs> a few days afterwards. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm not willing to have three days in my life yeah. just be erased from the calendar. 
Um, I kind of feel like jet lag is kind of the same thing. I got back from Sweden recently, and man, it was just like two days of hell. Really? Just trying to catch up to, just to feel normal again. Someone told me that melatonin is really good for helping you, uh, like kind of level out with the sleeping. I don't know if that works or not. There's one little uh, problem with melatonin for me, and I know that this happens to a lot of people, is that it causes vivid and I mean, really, really vivid nightmares. Oh right! <laughs> um, like uh, this is like a this is like a known side effect. Some people just get the most vivid, primal, horrible, realistic nightmares, uh, and that doesn't. Yeah, I, I, I yeah. think I'll give that a mess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like you get you get to you fall asleep sooner, but your sleep. It, you're you're basically you're in descending into, yeah. yeah in a torture chamber <laughs> a <laughs> mental torture chamber so with that said let's talk about you <laughs> um so you've had the opportunity to work with some of the very greats in the metal genre can you talk a little bit about that journey and how you were able to build a reputation for excellence and basically ascend to the level of w- working with people like bring me the horizon for instance i mean um I used to kind of work on, I mean, I still do. I, I work on a lot of kind of pop rock stuff as well. Um, but I, I guess the the metal thing might have come from, you know, th- my drums maybe. Um, because I, I guess like for me, um, I like heavy records, but like with real kind of, you know, real drum sounds and stuff like that. And um, I guess maybe it kind of started because I was, you know, using as much of that kind of stuff as possible and um yeah i mean i remember when i did a record with a band called silosis and uh, we did a record called monolith mm-hmm. and um even on that you know that record it's like i i i said to the to the band as well as like, i really want you know the sound of the kit you know of the drums to come through rather than kind of using you know piles and piles of samples and stuff like that so and I think, you know, for anyone who downloaded the Monuments uh, stems, you can probably hear on those that, you know, I spend a lot of time kind of getting the drum sounds right. And I think I think when you get, when you put it all together with all the guitars and stuff on a heavy record, you know, I, I guess people kind of like that, you know, I think. Do you think that's why Monuments came to you? Because I know that John Brown is very big into real drums. Yeah, I think I think so. I, I, guess, I guess in metal there's not too many... You know, because you know, I think a lot of people kind of go down the either the programming route or the sample replacement route. So I, I, I guess that was the reason why I got called in to do it. Well, I think that uh, I, I have a few theories on this. I think that most people deep down inside would rather have a great natural drum sound that's yeah. powerful and consistent. But let's face it, most drummers aren't that good. <laughs> yeah, and I think that. Uh, a lot of people just started develop, like, just didn't refine their natural drum uh, production skills and started, it just became a thing that working with so many bad drummers over so many years, yeah. like, their skills became really sharp at working with uh, super processed samples, yeah. um, not so much with natural drums. And uh, so even when they have the opportunity to work with a great natural drummer, they, a lot of these guys still tend to sample the hell out yeah, of them because yeah. they don't, you know, they're not that confident in their natural drum production. Yeah, I guess I guess it's, you know, if you haven't had the opportunity to work with really great drummers, then... 
you know, I mean, like I, I worked with Mike on the Monuments thing, and he is like one of the best. Drummers. Phenomenal. Oh, it's absolutely brilliant. You know, like, and it, and it, and you know, the things with drummers is like the better drummer they are, the more it allows you to do. Like, if they control mm-hmm. the cymbals well, then you know you're not having you know you know loads of problems with like bleed everywhere and you know like the horrible kind of bleeds you know so um yeah you know like having great drummers just really really helps i feel like that's one of the i mean not just one of i feel like that's the difference between a great heavy production and a yeah. not great heavy production yeah. is it all starts with the drums if you don't have drums yeah, I, you don't I, have shit. I will not i will not start doing any other part of the production until i'm i'm like sold on the drum sound because for me if you if you get the drum sounding amazing everything else just falls on top of it really easily like your guitars and your bass you know it all just falls on, on top but if you've got a kind of bad drum sound going on or there's something not quite right you end up trying to cover that sound with other instruments that you don't you know like the extra 20 guitars that you don't really need and like mm-hmm. just to cover it up a little bit so i i you know i spend ages getting the drums right and i th- I, I don't even think about doing anything else until i'm like super happy with it what does ages mean in your world um i i usually like you know i i usually try and have like a day set up time um where cuz i have a lot of drums um and like even if i'm traveling to another studio i'll take a lot of my kits with me so we're kind of you know do a day and then we we might just we might record a couple of songs at the end of the day but i kind of spend you know the best part of a day kind of trying different snares out um we'll see what heads we want to use in the kits we'll we'll try different toms different kicks um like it's very common common for me to like not have a kit that's all from the same brand you know like yeah for sure you know as one thing that always used to when i was doing this full time always used to bum me out was when a drummer would have their sponsor company send us a kit yeah because then we would be tied into using it yeah, me, and we would yeah. have to like film like we would have to film separately from production yeah. instead of just like capturing him recording yeah. like because i wasn't going to let the the sent drum set like influence the best production decisions. Like, yeah. if we want to use a different snare, we're going to use a better snare, you know? Yeah, I was, I was, I was having this exact conversation with someone yesterday, and, um, and yeah, we were talking about it, and it's like, you know, I want to use whatever drums sound the best, you know, and it's, it's, you know, it doesn't really matter to me what, you know, what deal the drummer's got with the company, you know, it's, I, I want to use what the best sounding drums are, you know? Yeah, it's the, I feel the same about guitars too. And I mean, you can always shoot a playthrough afterwards. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I I think that more times than not, any drum set that I've ever been really happy with, recording wise, has been a Frankenstein of yeah four different kits or something. Yeah, so I mean, so I mean, like for me, I have a Gretsch twenty four kick, which I love. I'm just such a huge fan of twenty four kick drums. Um, they have like that real nice low end to them and and if you you know the shallower you go with with those kits the kind of more attack and punch you get out of them um and then like you know i've got these i mean i've got quite a lot of you know various options but i at the moment i'm really loving i've got like a an old yamaha recording custom from like the 80s 
Um, and those toms just, they sound amazing. They record really well. They tune really easily. Um, so, you know, I might, you know, use, you know, an unmatched kit and then the snare will probably be different depending on what we're, what kind of sound we're going for. So speaking of tuning, do you hire a tech or do you do the tuning yourself? Um, it's sometimes if I, you know, if I've got the opportunity, I, I might bring someone in, but usually it's between me and the drummer. So I'll get the drummer to kind of roughly get it, you know, wh- where I, where I feel it should be. And then I'll kind of start, I'll do, I'll do some of the, li- you know, listening to it in the room, but I'll kind of concentrate more like when the mics are all up and then we'll, you know, me and the drummer will kind of both do it together, really. Do you ever find that sometimes drummers and bands are the worst tuners yeah, of all? Yeah, then I have to try and step in. And <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, if I can, then... I mean, I, I'm i kind of blessed. I work with quite a lot of good drummers, so um, most of the time they're pretty decent at tuning. Well, back to the Monument session. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one thing that was interesting about that session was... It's kind of like a picture of how a lot of modern productions happen. The drums happen in one place, guitars happened at John's home, I believe. Yeah. Uh, I did the vocals in a whole other country, yeah. and uh, then John mixed the music. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of sending files around and yeah. lots of communication. Uh, it, how often do you get in uh, situations like that, and do you even enjoy it? <laughs> um, it's it's not very often. Usually, if I'm doing a record, I'm kind of doing all of it. Um, but you know, I think I you know I, the album turned out amazing. You know, everyone did such a killer job on it. Um, it's you have to kind of make you know when you're recording it, you have to remember that you're not going to be you know doing the rest of it. So. Um, the one thing I did with the drums is um, I used an SSL and I kind of got the balance as much as I can so that when my returns were at zero, you had a pretty good sound there. So, mm-hmm. um, I, mean, I, I mean, I think the rooms, you know, may be different there, but like just a general kit, I wanted John to be able to take the files and kind of have a fairly hassle-free, you know, way to kind of, take you know, take them and, and then start mixing with them. Um, so it already sounds good. Levels levels up or faders is zero. Yeah, or, or you know, it's at least you know, it's at least kind of where you know, in a good good ballpark. Um, yeah, I kind of do that all the time, really, with whatever I'm doing, because even if it's my own thing, I I kind of like to have, you know, if I'm tracking something, I'll have all my return faders at zero, and then try and balance everything. Um, so that it sounds, you know, it sounds pretty good at zero. Um, the rooms might be printed a little louder or quieter, it depends. But um, generally, I kind of go for that because then I know that when I'm in, you know, the mix stage or something, if I'm at zero, that's kind of the sound that we had at the tracking stage. So, hey, one of the things that happens pretty commonly with now the mix sessions is that you just load them in. And the songs already sound really good. Yeah. And it's just a testament to how good the people are who uh, track the the songs that we yeah. that we license for it. But uh, it, that's really like something that sets, you know, kind of like separates the men from the boys in, in a lot of ways is if you put the raw tracks in, just faders up, does it already kind of sound all right? Like, yeah. Not great, but all right. 
Yeah, I mean, that that was the whole... I wanted to make it as easy as possible for John. I mean, it's something I do anyway with myself, you know. I, I kind of... I like the idea of you push the failures to zero and it's in a good place. You're not kind of having to regain, you know, gain stuff up and whatnot. Um, the other thing that I do... Um, which I think other people have started doing now. You know, I'm, I'm sure I didn't th- come up with it first, but I I have a numbering system on all the files um, because when I if you if you just send a bunch of files to someone, especially with drums, and they just load them up and they're all in like some crazy order, um, I I every time I put a zero one zero two zero three you know, on every channel. And that way, when you give the files to someone else, it imports in the exact order that you've been working on it. Um, it, it makes it easy to communicate with, you know, when, you, when you're talking to them about a certain file, you know exactly which one it is. Um, and it just saves you the hassle as well of, like, importing them into a DAW and having to rearrange them all and stuff like that. So um, You know, I've started, uh, I've started prepping files like that for our subscribers, just yeah. because so easy. it's it takes no time to no. to do um and it just makes life so much easier i think that that's the big thing when you're working with other people um you know kind of like a messy person uh sometimes understands like they get along on their own fine cuz they understand their own mess yeah um, <laughs> So I think a lot of producers are like that when the project is going to stay with them at all times, but you just cannot, you can't be that way when you're working with other people. I think it's just, it's a bad habit to get into anyway. You know, you, Absolutely. you, ne- you never know, someone might, might end up remixing the song and stuff. And if you've, if you've just got a load of files, which don't make any sense, then, you know, it becomes a problem. So it's always good to do it from the start. And then that way it's, it's done. It's out of the way. And, you know, if you do ever need to give it to someone, it's in a really, you know, easy, you know, it's in an easy state. Absolutely. So there's another record, though, that um, that you only did a part of uh, that I want to talk about. You got to record uh, the guitars for Motorhead's release, The World Is Yours. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is kind of one of those... Uh, bucket list moments i think yeah um, it was what was that like it was amazing it was um really really cool to be asked to do it lemmy would uh send us files from the states and we did yeah we did all the all the guitars basically on that record because phil was in the uk at the time um it was incredible you know every day i turn up i'd basically get to hear loads of amazing motorhead stories which you know i never get tired of hearing um, Are any of them shareable? <laughs> <laughs> or maybe Probably not. not. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, it's just amazing. You know, like Phil's such an interesting guy, and he's you know he's been in one of the biggest rock bands, you know, and you know he's just he's just got so so many great stories to share, and he's been through a lot. And I guess um, doing the guitars, I was kind of. You know, I think a lot a lot of what I do is, you know, there's some psychology in you're trying to read how the person wants to work. Um, and obviously Phil's made so many records over the years. So, you know, you're kind of finding a, you're trying to find, you know, somewhere that he's comfortable, you know, how he's comfortable working and stuff like that. You have to figure that stuff out. But, um, you know, we had a great time doing it. Um, it was absolutely amazing. 
and then since then I just actually just before I came here um, I just finished he asked me to make his uh, new record with his new band um, so we just finished doing that which I did the whole record and mixed it as well oh, nice so um, the day before flying out was actually in Abbey Road so we were just finishing the mastering um, but yeah I want to get to Abbey Road in a second because I do have some questions about that but cool. real quick when working with like guy when working with guys that are you know some of the originals uh from that from that generation of the 70s and 80s yeah. who have been doing it for as long as some of us have been alive um do you find a different sort of mindset than you do with maybe musicians that are in their 20s and uh might be successful but you know have been successful for 5 years or maybe 10 years i mean i i think my my approach doesn't change too much. I was kind of always, you know, told by a really good friend who's a producer, and, you know, back, back when I was starting out, he said, you know, never change what you, you do. You know, the reason why you're being hired is because of what you do. Um, so, you know, I mean, obviously with everyone I work with, there is a level of I'm trying to figure out how they want to work, you know, and stuff like that. But, I mean, with Phil, I, just, I was just myself, and, you know, we, you know, I, I didn't really alter the way I worked you know I just we you know we just uh just did what we did really I was just wondering because I guess I've assisted on some records where with bands that have been around for like 30 years and stuff and yeah. those guys tended to have their I guess their requirements and their preferences down to like you know an eighth of an inch <laughs> uh, ele elevation on a bass drum or you know things like that they were just I guess so they've been, set they've been used to it for so long I guess that you know you kind of get if you've been doing it for so long you kind of have things you like I guess uh, I guess that might be a reason yeah makes sense well without further ado you've worked at Abbey Road a few times now right yeah that's amazing it is the most incredible studio in the world it's just I remember when I was younger, I I had a photo outside because you you know you're not allowed in there unless you're working there, and uh, and I've got this photo of me outside it as a kid because uh, I was like fascinated with the place, and then you know I remember the first day of actually going in and actually you know going into work and it's just yeah it's just an incredible feeling you go in there and just all the history and you kind of walk down the corridors and there's like old tape machines and old you know emi consoles around and yes yeah it's just it's just absolutely incredible so your first time in there was your first time working in there yes yeah <laughs> did it seem real it takes a little while to kind of to kind of settle in um because it's just you know such an amazing place i mean you you go downstairs and there's like a big orchestra setting up to do a film score and you know, Studio Two is the Beatles room, and you know you just look at the live room; it's just such an iconic room. Um, and then you know you got Studio Three, which is the kind of more modern room with like a I think it's a seventy-two channel SSL in there. Um, yeah, it takes a while to kind of get your head around that you know you're actually in there working, but it, you know it's, it's it's the most incredible place. It, I feel like um, like it would be a place where I would only appreciate it after I left. Yeah, you get you get so busy, you know. Like it's been multiple times I'm on the train home, and and you're just kind of reflecting on you know what you've done that day, and 
you know, when you're working there, it's, it's you know you're usually like really busy all day. But yeah, no, I agree. Like it's it's definitely one of those places where you kind of look back and go, oh, that was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, it's one of those things where whenever I've been around that level of history, it, like, doesn't seem real when yeah. I'm around it. Like, I guess when my band was on OzFest once and, like, uh, Ozzy would, like, walk right by me, it just didn't, <laughs> it just didn't seem real. It seemed, it was just, it was just surreal. I didn't, and yeah. I didn't, it, the how awesome that was didn't sink in until yeah it takes you know, so, yeah six months later the other the other great thing about that place is the you know the the in-house assistants are absolutely amazing they're like they're so you know they're trained so well um i remember i was doing a vocal session there and we had two two mics we, we were running two mics because there were two singers uh, in the band and um you know, just just them reading the situation when you know we were about to change um, microphones for the first time, and I didn't even have to say anything. It was just done. You know, it just gave you know, you just gave me a look and just nodded. It's done. Um, yeah, you know, they're absolutely you know really great staff there as well, which which is so important to any recording session. I agree. So you uh, mixed uh, "Bring Me the Horizon" live at Wembley there. Yeah. Um, why did so I mean we all know that with mixing, uh, you know, some you don't necessarily need the place with the best live rooms or orchestra pits. Like why go through all that trouble to mix an album? So I should maybe I'll talk a little bit about the session. Um, sure. What, what I actually I actually mixed um, both live at Wembley and uh, live at Royal Albert Hall. Um, in my studio, but what we did, we did the um, I did the five point one Wembley mix at uh, Abbey Road in the penthouse. Ah, I see. Um, okay. So it might be worth kind of discussing how you know why and you know all that. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm actually very curious as I, to why you would do that. Why why well, not just do it at your I place? Don't, I don't have a, well. I did the stereo mix at my place, but I don't have a five point one system at my place. Um, so we kind of went there because they've got an amazing 5.1 mix room. Um, but the one thing I wanted with both those both those uh, things is I didn't want the 5.1 to sound so different to the stereo mix. I wanted there to be some kind of thing that connected them. I, you know, I didn't want you to put on the 5.1 mix and it'd be, and it'd be completely different. So um, what we actually did was once I finished the stereo mix... I stemmed it into about 20, 25 different stems. Um, so had kick, snare, the rest of the kit, and then bass, guitars, uh, and then split the, the keyboards. The, 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 one of the important things was to make sure that all the low-end stuff kind of had its own track so that we could kind of run those into the subs in 5.1 if we wanted to. Um, so, so when it came to like the keyboard stems... They were kind of split up a little bit. Okay, this you know this keys keyboard track's got more low end in it, so maybe we'll separate that off. And then, what about bass guitar? Did you separate the bass guitar into high and low? Uh, not not into high and low, just just one track of that. It's because you can just kind of dial in how much of that you want to then send to the sub. You don't have to send the whole thing into it. Yep. Oh, okay, um, got it. And then the whole point of doing this was then if you imported those files into a fresh session at zero, it plays the stereo mix. Um, so we did that, and then when I went to Abbey Road then to do the 5.1, when I loaded all my files, it played the stereo mix. So then 
all I really needed to do then is just actually create the surround space then. And I've so, so I've still got my all my EQs, my compression, you know, the mix sounds the same. It's just now in a 5.1 environment where it's the the, the whole thing with both those uh, releases was I wanted to make the listener feel like they were watching the band. I didn't I you know, I didn't want, you know, like a comedy guitar solo to come from behind you or you know, anything stupid like that. A, a guitar solo to come from behind you? Well, you know, like <laughs> you know, just surround panning. There's nothing weird like that going on. It's just... Um, <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, it just kind of made it so that, you know, it felt like you were in the gig. Um, one thing I did with that, with something I do if I'm doing surround, um, is we actually uh, fed... I, I took the ambient mics from the show and ran them into a Bracasti reverb um, with mm-hmm. a very dark, fairly long kind of um, reverb on it. And we kind of fed some of um, the band as well into that same verb. And I kind of placed that towards the rears. So when, you, when you're actually listening to the gig, you're, you're also getting this kind of dull, um, reverbed sound behind you, which is kind of what you kind of get sometimes when you're, when you're at a show. So there's there's things like that going on in there as well. And how long did this take? Like, is this like a significantly more involved process than the regular mix? Five point one just took a day to do because the mix was already oh, okay because it was already Got done. It. You know, you just kind of you just kind of placing things really and mm-hmm. and, okay. then, and then checking it's all going to work and you know in five point one. Um, I mean, the, the Royal Albert Hall show was one of the biggest and hardest mixes I've ever done. No, let's um, talk about that. That's does that did that involve an orchestra? Yeah, I think it's like a fifty-two piece orchestra, a choir, and Man, you're also t- trying to make the band sound massive as well. Yeah, talk about two things that don't want to work together: <laughs> an orchestra and a band. Yeah, and they sound incredible when they do work together, but it's such a technical challenge to make it work. Yeah, it, 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 the whole thing was just really hard. I mean. I went to the show as well, and um, you know the the show was incredible. So I kind of I knew, you know, I knew um, the, the show really well. Um, but yeah, the the difficult thing was making the band sound big, and then fitting an entire orchestra on top of that, and then fitting a choir on top of that as well. Um, the one thing I I did there's there's a lot of automation in that session. Um, I kind of. I, th- I think a lot of people when they're mixing stuff like this sometimes have the ambient mics like really high and then just blend everything around it but you get a really washy sound that way and you know it's also very echoey and I, I wanted you know I wanted it to sound live but still really nice and clear and mm-hmm. you know so all through the show the the um, ambient stuff has just got so much you know fader rides on it and um, and I, I, I mixed it to the picture I think it, you know that was so important for me um, because you kind of your mix kind of goes off what you're seeing as well. Um, so, like during the show, there'll be certain points where there'll be a shot of the strings, and the strings then on the mix just get an out, you know, just a slight push, just so I wanted for the video and the audio to connect. You know, so when you're watching a string play, you kind of you can hear what they're doing a little more clearer. It's only very subtle, but or or drum fills maybe. Yeah, like yeah. If it, happen, yeah. If it happens to be like yeah. a shot of the drummer at yeah. that point in time. So I mean, I'd pick my moments because you don't want to kind of do that all through the show and you know make it obvious. Um, so basically, I had um, 
16 um, moving faders, which I could, you know, you, you can't do it. You know, it's, it's so hard to do a show like that with a mouse. You need real faders to do it. So I kind of locked the last bank to like the main kind of group uh, components. So like the the crowd mics, the 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 two main vocal mics, the and a sub mix of the orchestra, a sub mix of the choir. So I had those faders on my hands all through, you know, the show. So. You know, it, it allowed it allowed me to kind of watch watch the video and kind of do rides really easily. Um, but yeah, it was such a difficult one. I, I actually mixed it twice because <laughs> uh, I mixed it the first time. Well, I, I mixed about six songs for it. I don't even know if the band knows knows this. Um, but I mixed about six songs. I took it back to to my house just to watch it, and I was like, "It sounds great," but there's this like this this last like five ten percent that. I think, you know, because it's such a massive multi-track, there's so much balancing to, to do on it. And I kind of gave myself two options. I was like, well, I can either edit this mix or I can just wipe it and start again. And I chose to just start again. Man, um, sometimes that's the only way it's to the, go. Sometimes it's the best way to do it. And, you know, like, I always get days where, I mean, usually, I you know, I mix no problem, but you might get a day where it's just not happening or... Or you know it could be better, and sometimes I find it's just better to start again, and then that one day you do it again, everything kind of aligns for you, and you know everything starts happening right. And, and I'm so glad I did it because you know I'm really really happy with how it turned out in the end. How long did it take to mix that whole thing? <laughs> On and off, it was about a month. It was. Oh, that's uh, not so bad. Yeah, for for a for a monster project yeah. like that, that's it not so bad. It wasn't constantly every day, but um, yeah, I mean, there was so much to look at. So, and even the stem printing took so long because don't forget, if you're doing twenty stems for the surround thing, the show is like, you know, almost you know an hour hour and a half at least. So you got to do that times twenty stems. You know, it's, it's a lot. It's, it's a long time. I actually did this thing where I set the set when I was coming to the stem part, and this might be handy for some people. Um, when I was coming to do the stem things, because it's such a long show, you don't really want to be sat in the studio um, waiting for each of these things, to, you know, to to finish. Um, so I set the session up in a way that I could um, remotely access the computer. So. I would I could be smart, anywhere smart and man. I knew that in an hour and a half I just log in I see my screen on my phone or on my computer at home and I could just set up the next stem and that way I could kind of get on with life <laughs> and uh but still have these stems running you know still printing for me yeah I uh, I mean shit dude I I would sometimes just do that from the other room um, yeah. with well, back well now and I don't know if this is unique to the situation of mixing that, but now I have a template that's basically routes all stems out. So as soon as I'm printing yeah. the final mix, master of the song, I'm also printing all the stems at the oh, same that's, time. That's great. That's a good idea. It, it definitely made life a lot easier. Yeah. But before I had that, I would just screen share from another room yeah. and be working on something else and then just hit record, check in five minutes, hit record yeah. again, check in five minutes. I, th I think one one thing I did once, I was mixing a record on an SSL, and the one thing we were able to do on that one was use all the 
the um the bus outs and then so i had the entire i had the entire session on the desk and we were able to like time code sync sync my rig to their pro tools rig and just print all the stems in one pass you know using the bus outs which that was you know that was also an, an easy way to do it as well that that definitely works um so you worked with a band called kids in glass houses which uh, I know are successful pop rock in the UK, but they're not they're not very well known here. Um, but you were telling me that that was actually a really important record for you. Could you tell yeah. me a little bit about working with them? I mean, you know, this this is going back a you know a long time ago. I, I did um, it's been EP released with them back in the day, and um, th- that record uh, that EP we did got them signed to Roadrunner. Um, and it was an, it was an important record uh, because when that that record got released, it it really uh, helped my career develop. Um, and then, how long had you been um, going for it before that? Um, I mean, three three four years maybe. I can't I can't quite remember, but um, I mean, I I was already kind of getting a lot of work in, but that kind of took it to the next level, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, also you're dealing with Roadrunner, you know, the label and... You Which know, is the, a whole world yeah, in it's and a of whole, itself. Yeah, of course, yeah. That's <laughs> an education. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, it was, it was a really important record for me. Um, I took, you know, we spent quite a while making, making it, and it did really well here, and, you know, they still influence a lot of the kind of um the kind of pop rock bands in the UK. Um I still get a lot of people coming up to me talking about the album. Um so yeah, you know, I I, I felt it was a pretty important one. How did it change after you made that record? Like how did your career change? Well, I think um after that, you know, I kind of I think after that, my next phone call was, um, you know, the big record is probably Funeral for a Friend. Um, so, you know, I, you know, I was actually a huge fan of that band. So it was, uh, it was amazing to be asked to work with them, and they actually kept me on for like multiple albums, which is wasn't, you know, I wasn't expecting that. But we, you know, we got along so great, and you know, we were all on the same page, and I was not afraid to kind of, you know tell them what I thought about the songs and stuff. So, you know, there's a good trust between us. And um, so I ended up doing, like, three records with them and, like, loads of other stuff in between. Um, so, yeah, you know, it, it was definitely a moment which I felt, you know, okay, things are now kind of going well. <laughs> so at what point did you find that you needed to get an assistant or do you use an assistant? I do. So I, I have... Um, a really great assistant in my studio, which um, I actually I actually have them kind of set up like on a retainer because it's quite unusual for that to happen. But for me, yeah, like, it is. My assistant is so important to me because I, I want to kind of walk in the studio and things are set up how I want, and I don't really want to have to get involved with thinking about that stuff. I've got other things to kind of look at. Um, so you know, he's worked with me for ten years now. Um, and he knows me really, really well. Like he'll know what I'm gonna 
look be looking to do. Um, he'll set up the mic switch he thinks I'm probably going to like. And then at least we've got a starting point, you know, because then I can go, okay, I don't like this mic on the rack. Let's change that or something. But um, I have him uh, there permanently because it makes my life so much easier. Um because I can I can then, you know, concentrate more on talking to the band and like going through songs and stuff like that than having to worry about, you know, is this patched in here or, you know, stuff like that, you know. So um it's super important for me. I think generally it's 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 kinda of why I help a lot of um people who are looking, you know, people in universities and stuff, uh, I'll sometimes take them on to to kind of show them how important it is and you know how to be you know be behave in a session and you know i think if if you get a chance to do this with a producer it, it, it could it could be a job for a very long time if you if you get it right well let's talk a little bit about the how to behave in the studio cuz that is so important yeah what so what do you say to people who you meet at these at these classes that are super eager, which is exactly the way you shouldn't be. Yeah. <laughs> when you're at a studio, <laughs> yeah, yeah. like, do you tell them, dude, you got to chill or how, like... I, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, most most people are kind of clever enough to realize that you can't come into the studio and be talking all the time. Um, See, so, you know, I, I always tell them just, you know, just got to be really quiet, take, you know, observe everything, take in what's going on, and... Um, and, you know, be helpful at times when you think you're not going to get in the way. So, you know, whether that's kind of coiling up some cables that are a mess on the floor or whatever, you know, just, just things that are really not going to get in the way of the session running. You you don't want you don't want that. I don't, you know, I, I never want someone who's just constantly talking to the band in the back of the control room um, because that just gets really distracting for me if I'm, if I'm wanting to concentrate a little bit and the assistant's just talking about something um mm-hmm. you know that stuff you don't want <laughs> and then and then the the main the main you know no go is never suggest anything for the song um i've, I've kicked a, <laughs> i've kicked a couple of people out you know just coming up with you know the producer doesn't you know doesn't want you to be coming up with these all these suggestions you know for me i might be you know sometimes i will you know, I'll be kind of trying to get an idea out of the guitarist. So sometimes I might kind of, I've done it before where I've wanted a guitarist to play a part a certain way, but maybe they're a bit stubborn and they 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 want to kind of make sure it's or everything is their idea. So I'll kind of like have a guitar and I'll just be kind of quietly playing it another way until they kind of figure it out, you know, subconsciously. And then They'll be like, "Ah, oh, Ramesh, you got this idea, a better way to play it," and I'd be like, "Yeah, cool, great, let's do it." <laughs> you know, and so if you've got an assistant who kind of chips in and goes, "Oh, you should play it this way," you just kind of ruin that whole thing that the producer was trying to do, which is extract the idea out of the guitarist. Yeah. Um, so you know, stuff like that, and also it sounds stupid, but whoever makes the coffee is the band's best friend, you know, and. Um, you know, just, just you know, things things like that. That it's so not stupid though, because yeah, yeah, it's, it's you so need important. to keep your clients feeling yeah. good. Yeah, and you know, everyone loves coffee, don't they? So, um, but I hope so. The main the main thing is just pick your moments as well, because you know, as a producer, I don't, I'm not inviting people just to have an extra pair of hands. I want them to get something out of it. 
you know, so you pick your moments to talk to the producer then. And if you do have questions, you know, just make sure you're asking them at the right time. If they're in the middle of kind of going through guitar sounds, don't start asking them, well, what are you doing here? You know, why are you going for that? You know, that's not the time to do it. Um, you want to just, you know, not interrupt the session at all and just kind of be as, you know, quiet as you can. And then when the time is right, then kind of ask, ask what questions you want. And I mean, I've seen people get dumped from sessions pretty unceremoniously <laughs> for doing exactly the things you just said not to yeah. do. I had one also fall asleep. Oh no. Which, uh, I think I threw a roll of gaffer tape at his at him, and he woke up. <laughs> <laughs> Man, how could like I don't understand how you can be uh, an assistant on a session, getting that opportunity, yeah. and fall asleep. Yeah, some people but, just don't cut out for it. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. Probably better that they that but, they learn it. You but know? the one the one thing that everyone says, and you know, obviously to people listening, you know, try and do this because they always say, you know, you they've learned so much just by being on a real session. Then you you know you you know it's something if you want to get some more skills behind you, um, it's definitely something to try and do because. You get to see real life stuff, and you know, f for me, the, the the things that are important with an assistant is also being able to troubleshoot things really fast, and also troubleshooting without letting the client know. Um, and you get to see all this stuff happen. You know, if something's not working, you know, the assistant then would, or the engineer, whoever, you know, be like, right, let's troubleshoot this, and you start from the beginning. You work out what's not working. Um, so, you, you know, you get to, you know, when we did the New Zealand thing last week, the, um, you know, some of the Neve channels just died and, you know, we had to pull them out and try cleaning them and you eventually swap the modules. But it's important because you get to see all this stuff that you don't pretend, you know, you don't always get to learn, you know, if you're going to a university or something. Yeah, you know, I can echo this because, like, for instance, when I first started recording, and was not on professional sessions. It took me a while to get anywhere. And then suddenly my band worked with Colin Richardson like five yeah, years in. I know Colin. He mixed our record. Um, I came to London to watch him mix. And just from being with him for three weeks, I went back home better. Yeah. And uh, then a few years later when I, I uh, went to Audio Hammer and started working on sessions there, I just got better like, in like within a month, I was yeah. just way better than I had ever been in my life, just because the pressure, you know, the pressure makes you learn. Yeah, of course it does, and I think it's just seeing other people's ways of doing things as well, and you know, it just all helps you kind of. It helps you with your own techniques, you know. So um, it's definitely something which uh, people keep telling me that you know they get a, a huge amount out of by you know by sitting in on these sessions. There's some exceptions to that rule, like my partner, Joey Sturgis. He's kind of never worked under anybody and just developed his own way of mixing. Yeah. And But he's definitely a freak and an outlier, in my opinion. <laughs> like, most people can't just teach themselves a method of mixing that's brand new like yeah. that. Most people, you know, do need a mentor of some yeah. sort. I think, it, I think it at least helps, you know, if you, you know, if you want to kind of expand on where you are then you know I think it definitely helps to to kind of you know have some extra 
extra knowledge. Absolutely. And how does someone go about getting an internship or uh, an opportunity with with you or someone like you, in your opinion? I mean, I usually get emails, um, but I, t- to be honest, I tend to only give them to people that I've like met. Like, mm-hmm. and a lot of the time, is what you know, I'm on a night out or something, and someone comes up to me, and uh, and but but that way, you kind of know that they're gonna, you know, you can kind of tell if someone's gonna maybe be a problem, or whether they're gonna be all right in the studio. Um, but you know, usually, like you know, I, I read all the the males that come in to do anything like this and as long as you kind of present yourself in a good way and and show that you understand the etiquette of kind of you know the, the, you know being an assistant in the studio or or sitting in then you know I'm I'm quite happy to you know, to, to take to take them in, you know, if I can. Well, I just think it's uh, brilliant that you said that generally you have to meet them in real life because, I mean, really, like, you're not going to bring someone to your studio to be around your clients who are in big yeah. bands and legendary yeah. bands. You're not going to just bring yeah. someone off the street who yeah. you don't know. I, if You know, it's especially depending on the client, I'll, I'll be very strict as to, you know, who I, who I have. And so, you know, I've got a, a few people who... Um, I've let them stay a bit longer, and so like I can't. I'll kind of off, if they've been really great, I'll kind of offer them back, um, and there'll be people who I know will not cause me any problems in the session. But yeah, I, I you know I definitely kind of pretty much go with the people I've met um, because then you you know you can kind of gauge how it's you know how they're going to be. Yeah, um, especially these days, it's kind of hard to enforce that just because the internet is such a part of our lives and get hit up from people from all over the world. But it really, we tell people all the time, if you want to work in this field, you need to go to where the jobs are because really like your best opportunities are going to come from people that know you and who have decided that you're a cool person. Like if they already have pre-qualified you as a cool person, um, it's almost like, for instance, here's a, I know you work in Cubase. Um, New Endo, I'm in. New Endo, sorry. Same, same kind of thing. Close enough. Um, I'm sure that like if you met somebody who was a good engineer, but they worked in Pro Tools and they said, look, I haven't used New Endo, but I will learn it in two weeks yeah. if you give me the chance. But they were totally cool and you knew that they were responsible. Yeah. Like you would probably give them the shot, right? Yeah, to, of course, yeah. Yeah, as opposed to someone who knew Nuendo but smelled bad and <laughs> <laughs> and was just, you know, made shitty coffee or something. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, like, you know, the level of your knowledge is not super important to me because that's the reason why you're coming to, you know, to do that. But it's it's more how you are as a person and, you know, just just showing me that, you know, you want to learn stuff and, you know, that that's more important to me than what you can do at the moment. Yeah. I completely agreed. So I've got some questions here from our crowd for you. Okay. Um, some of these are questions that I had, but I'm just going to go ahead and attribute it to them because I want them to feel good. So first one is from Rodney Altenbow, which is uh, your collection of amplifiers is something I greatly admire. If you had to pick one to be your desert island amp, which one and why? And uh, before you answer that, let me just add, could you tell us a little bit about your collection of amps? Because it's incredible. It's also a big problem of mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, for, you know, it's just kind of grown over time. But, but for me, I have it because, and it's the same with drums. I have it because I really love the idea of 
you know, searching for a sound. And, and if one app doesn't work, we'll just try another one. Um, you know, and I think that you know, by do, you, you're not kind of bending one app to try and get this sound, and you know, using all these pedals then and all, all this stuff. You know, I, I just just try another amp and just see if that works. And I think it's 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 really creative as well. You know, for the guitarist, you know, to be able, you know, they love it. They love walking in, and seeing all the amps, and you know, it's like a playground for them. Um, and you know, a tone inspires you as well. You know, it's like it's like when you get a new guitar and you'd like write a song like in ten minutes. Um, you know, the tone is exactly the same. It's like you, it's kind of you know. One thing I don't really massively do is like a lot of reamping, um, because for me, I feel that the guitarist and the amp, you know, the guitarist will play to the sound that they're going for. So I, I, you know, I tend to spend a lot of time with you know the guitar amp and making sure that sound is right going down. Um, See, the collection's got loads of Marshall stuff there. There's, you know, an old older PV-150, uh, Mesa, Dual Rack. Um, I, I don't know how I would go about picking an amp because they, you know, they're all suited for different things. Um, you know, I feel like uh, I've been involved in studios that have pretty big amp collections and somehow... 5150 block letter made it on like 70% yeah, that, of the rhythm tracks. Yeah. I so, I agree that that is one of my favorites to be fair. Strange, right though? Like yeah. and it just sits in the track really well. You're not the only person to say that. Yeah, it's just I know lots of guys who have lots of expensive amps and somehow that amp tends yeah. to just always be a mainstay for everybody. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's the same for me. I think it's it's an amp that, you know, it's got loads of weight behind it in the lows. Um, and it's it, got it, teeth. Yeah, it just sits in the track really well. And, you know, like as a rhythm part or even leads, you know, even on, on uh, Phil from Motorhead's new records, um, we use it for all the lead stuff. It's got, you know... It's it's great for that sustained sound, um, but yeah, you know that. Yeah, I'm I'm with you there. That's definitely one I I use loads. So um, here's one from Scott Kelly, and I guess I'm actually curious based on what a good answer you just gave on your amp collection. Scott Kelly is wondering what are your thoughts on amp sims and profiling amplifiers. Do you use them at any point during pre or post production, or are you strictly um, you know, going through your amp collection. I think I actually had one of the first campers in the UK. Um, and I kind of got it because I was like, okay, if this works, then I can I can have all my amps and use them in my Studio B. Um, I'm not going to go down the debate of whether it sounds the same or not. It's, it's a It's a big hole. I'm not going to fall into that. Um, it's like Mac versus PC. Yeah, but, yeah. but you know, I've still got all my amps, you know. Um, I haven't sold them. Um, I mean, so I think that the big debate, which is stupid, is what's better? Because yeah. what's better is whatever you can get results with. But Exactly, yeah. To say that a, a digital amp sounds like my Bogner Ecstasy and feels like it, that's not true. Yeah. The Bogner Ecstasy feels like the Bogner Ecstasy. Yeah. But no it, other two amp feels like it either. Yeah. But it's whether it sounds good or not is the, is the yeah. main thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's I agree. what matters is what, I mean, what results you get out of it. That's what matters. I uh, The one thing I think the Kemper is absolutely amazing for is like cleaner and like slightly crunchy sounds. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I kind of, 
use it for that. I've got like my Vox AC30 profiled in it and it actually, you know, came up pretty good. You know, it, it didn't sound exactly like the amp, but it sounds great. So I, I, um, um, I use it a lot for clean stuff and, you know, you can really go nuts on the delay options in that unit. Um, so I use it for that, but, you know, for me really, anything like that, I'm generally just using at the guide stage. Um, so like when I'm, when I'm starting the track, and I'm tracking the drums, I might just use, you know, the Kemper and, you know, something else. But then I'll go through real amps and when I'm actually doing the record. Makes sense. So here's one from Connor Reesing, which is, uh, Silosis's Monolith album is one of the best-sounding metal albums ever. I've always thought that the drum sound is especially incredible, and I was wondering if you could explain how you achieved it. It sounds huge and very natural, yet doesn't lack any clarity or punch. Uh Cool, thank you. I'm glad you glad you like it. Um, I mean, it, it was yeah. It's just going back to what I was talking about earlier. I wanted the drums to be as natural as possible. So I mean, it starts at the tracking session. If the if some of the hits are weaker, you have to replay it, and you know you have to kind of. When I was doing the drums, I'm kind of imagining that there's going to be a big guitar sound on top of it, and you've got to you know make sure it cuts cuts through you know you're going to be able to make it cut through so i use quite a lot of um room mics on there to kind of give it a space um which i think you know you hear the rooms quite a bit in the record the one thing that we that i did was i didn't use samples but a certain not you know not other samples but what i did was i think i took a a couple of hits of the actual snare we used and then if there were any kind of um if it, when i got to the mix if there was anything that i needed to kind of uh tweak then i i had a stronger hit you know if i if mm-hmm. it was kind of you know but you know n- nothing crazy really it was just it just kind of got the recording right and then um you know like like i was saying earlier if you when the drums sound good everything just falls on top of it quite easily so yeah nothing it's true yeah Nothing crazy on it. Well, isn't it funny, though, how, like, um, and I hear this a lot from people, and I've seen this a lot, this concept on Nail the Mix, that lots of the best-sounding mixes or productions or tones that I have personally gotten or seen other people get tend to be nothing crazy, like you just said. But what I think the part that is crazy is what it took to learn how to get to that point where because you have millions of options in what you could do tone-wise, right? Yeah. But you're doing the four or five moves between the microphone placement and how you tune the drum, the drum that you chose, all that stuff. Yeah. The, you're making like five or six or seven or eight decisions that make all the difference out of the millions of possibilities. Yeah. So that's the crazy part is uh, getting to the point where you understand which of the basic moves uh, in combination with each other like basically unlock the tone puzzle. Yeah, or... I mean, to 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 be fair, what what I do a lot. I mean, I had someone ask me like not long ago. Oh, hey man, do you remember uh, what frequencies you EQ'd on this funeral for a friend's net? And I was like, no, and I I probably didn't even know at the time either because I when I'm when I'm doing things and I'm trying to get a sound, I'm listening through the speakers and I'm chasing a sound in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, obviously, I know what the you know what the frequencies you know will sound like, but I, I kind of disconnect myself from any you know super technical things. I, I go for what feels good. So you know, I think all those kind of if 
you know, for, for me, it's, it's chasing a sound that's in my head, and I'll just keep going until I get it. Makes sense. Yeah. So here's one from Mario Maslik, which is, and uh, I don't know how you can answer this in, <laughs> in a succinct way, but how do you go about producing rhythm guitars and metal? Do you use the same amp box with the same settings for both hard left and hard right, or a slightly different setup? What's your go-to mic in this case, and how many tracks do you record for each side? So... I mean, if it depends if it's a busy riff or not. If uh, sometimes with guitars, the less guitars makes it sound bigger, um, especially with riffs and stuff. Sometimes if you kind of go overboard with it, it, the sound actually just starts shrinking and gets less clear because everything's playing at slightly, you know, the riff at slightly different times, and you lose that width a little bit. Um, I tend to use the same guitar on both sides because here's the thing: sometimes when you use another guitar, you're in, you've got slightly different intonation, um, and it can cause the tuning to just sound a little weird. So I, I tend to stick to the same guitar. I might change the amp. Um, I rarely do, to be honest. With with kind of heavier stuff, I kind of like the symmetry of you know the guitars being you know quite wide. Um, and then I'll kind of, I'll use the lead stuff to kind of do any, you know, color moments that I want. Um, but it's, you know, I have, I have sometimes just changed, changed the amp, but, um, mic wise, um, it varies. I, I usually have three mics set up on a cab. Um, so I have a 57, a 121, a Royal 121 and a Bayer M160. Um, the M160 oh, nice. is a, it's, it's a great guitar mic. It's it's not very expensive, um, but it's an amazing mic on guitars. That's a good mic. Yeah, it's brilliant. I think it gets kind of forgotten about, you know, quite a bit. But it's if you know if anyone wants a really good ribbon mic, that is that is really good. Um, but the one thing I do with guitars is. I'll sum the mics down to one channel. I'm not someone who wants to keep loads of guitar tracks in the DAW and then be deciding on the blend later. So what I do is all the mics come into my console on three faders, for, you know, a fader for each, and then they're all summed to one channel, and that's the channel I record. And, you know, it forces you to make a decision, and, and it, you know, because you, you, I think otherwise you, you kind of... You never finish the guitar sound. You're kind of constantly changing the blend. Um, I like, you know, a lot of how I work is I kind of make decisions and print them, um, even down to my use of compression on the way in. You know, if it's if it's slammed a bit, but it sounds how I want it, then I'll just print it. Um, but yeah, with the guitars, I'll kind of get the faders up. I love um, Chandler TG2 preamps, um, which I use for those. Um, and then I'll just I'll just kind of play around with the balance between the mics. Um, the one thing I do is you've got to make sure these mics are completely in phase. Um, the one mistake, one mistake a lot of people make is is not you know it's the distance between the the cab grill and the actual mic. You've got to make sure the capsules are aligned. Like for instance, you know the SM7, the capsule doesn't start until like halfway down the. The mic, and if you if you've got that set up, and then a mic really close up, there's going to be a time difference there. Mm -hmm. um, 
So we spend a lot of time doing that first. And then I just, yeah, I sum the mics down. I find a blend. Everyone's happy. Guitarist is happy. It sounds great in the track. Then we, you know, I print it to one channel and, and there it goes. It, it just, and you know, isn't that just a great uh, mindset for recording in general? Like find a tone that yeah. works and commit. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm such a, I, I try and like, tell this to so many people it's like you know just commit the ideas as long as you know what you're doing um then commit them you know like i think there was a couple of sessions and i I got sent something to mix and like for every guitar part there were like five mics and i ended up turning it down i didn't do it because it was like no one's made a decision here on anything you know um like you know a couple of mics is fine but like when you're just printing all these different mics you haven't really decided what you're going to use um it means that as a mixer then i don't really know what tone you were shooting for at the beginning you know um, man i can't tell you how annoying it is like when i've gotten stuff to mix or you know when i've prepped mixes for another mixer and yeah. it was something that was not recorded in house um and there's like two tracks of guitars, each one of them have eight mics <laughs> and they're not summed. It's like, well, what, what do you want me to do here? Yeah. You just end up reamping it. And, it, and it, it's not just that. It's like, it's when there's so many guitar parts in a song. So like the lead guitar, then that's got another yeah. million channels on it. And then this one's got another, and the session just becomes really hard to manage as well. I could, mm -hmm. I, I would, if you wanted to give someone the option, you know, all the mics and at least, at least also sub them with, with where you were feeling the guitar sounded good as well. Um, you know, yeah. So I, I commit all, all my guitar things. I commit, I do take a DI as well, just in case we get it wrong. Um, but you know, I generally just commit and get on with it. And, and that, approach applies to pretty much everything I do the comp you know compression with drums you know like uh, on the monument stems for example I've printed compression off um on the snare mics and you know stuff like that you know stuff like that I'm, I'm totally fine with as long as I'm confident that that is the sound I'm after great answer here's one from Johnny Marsh I've heard the music scene in Cardiff, where you are, is pretty decent in terms of live music and also the quality of bands that are around. Was this always the case? Has it improved or declined over the years? And do you think it has much to do with Longwave? If I try to explain myself a little better, I'm coming from an area where the live scene is dead and the recording scene is geared more towards grime and similar styles. Right. I'm trying to ascertain if the best attitude is to go to where the good music is or adopt a build-it-and-they-will-come attitude. Sorry if I haven't explained myself very well. I think no, you explained yourself just it, fine. Yeah, I think it makes sense. Um, I mean, for, for a very long time, you know, Cardiff, Wales in general has had a very, very strong music scene. Um, I think there was a time when it was, you know, amazing when, you know, you had um, Funeral for a Friend, you had Bullet, Kids in Glass Houses, The Blackout. You know, there was just, it was just a ton of bands constantly doing well. Um, you know, it, it's got a little bit quieter recently in my opinion but there's still amazing music out there um i guess you know maybe i had something to do with it I, I did work with a lot of um the the artists around um but i think everyone just kind of inspired each other you know like 
in in Cardiff in general, bands the industry is very you know everyone knows each other. All the bands are really friendly. They help each other. If one band's getting big, then you know they'll help the next band up. And you know it's 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 quite a community there. Even if I go on a night out, you know it's very you know usual to like bump into like loads of bands in the street. Um, everyone kind of hangs out together. Um, in answer to your other question um it's not a bad idea going somewhere where there is a big scene because you know you can go out and um you know and i think it'll probably help you get work but that's you know it's not to say that you still can't be involved from another place but um i, I you know it could be something to think about i think uh, if you've got a lot of artists around that is kind of the genre you want to work in, then maybe it, maybe it could be a good idea. I'm a big proponent of going to where the opportunity is. I've done it in my life. Yeah. Um, I would do it again. And I know that there's some outliers and individual examples. Again, like my business partner, Joey, who can make it work for themselves in an area where there's yeah. a questionable opportunity, like the cornfields of Indiana. <laughs> but by and large, and I think that it's, not realistic for people to think that they are outliers. If you're an outlier, you just have, you are, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's, yeah. and it's not, it's almost not for you to decide that kind of like, it's not for you to decide if you're a genius or not. Um, if you are, the world will kind of bend itself to you. You yeah. shouldn't assume that that's you. And yeah. you should just assume that you're not going to get lucky and yeah. that you're going to have to struggle. And so you want to set the odds as in your favor as possible. Yeah. And so go to where the opportunity is. Yeah, like stack it, the odds in your favor. And it also allows you to integrate with a scene there and, you know, you, uh, you know, I think I think it's a good idea. Yeah, absolutely. Make it happen. The younger the better. Yeah. Um <laughs> yeah, I mean, just don't do it when you're 35 and have yeah, kids and yeah, exactly. you know, yeah. do it when you're 21. Yeah, um, when you can. When yeah. So here's one from Caleb Spencer and You've already answered half of this, so just uh, just saying. We don't need to go over it again. So, love the sound of your recordings and mixes. Could you mind talking about the process of how you record and edit guitars? So, we already talked about how you record guitars, but what about editing? So, okay, it might be a good idea to explain my workflow in general. Um, what I do is, so we have a bunch of machines in the studio, and they're all... Uh, connected via Ethernet, they all talk to each other. Um, what it means is, like, say, I mean, I'll just talk about drums very briefly. Um, if I'm doing drums, when I finish doing that drum track, the one, you know, the one thing that usually happens is you have to then just wait around for ages while it gets edited. Um, you know, if you need to edit it. So we have a system, a, a, you know, a workflow where I will then my assistant will then see that session file. And then he can start editing it, and then I can actually start tracking another song. Mm -hmm. um, so all my edits get done in the background of a session, which just means I can use so much more studio time. I can get a lot more done in the day than waiting around, you know. Um, so, you know, especially when you're on a tight schedule somewhere, just having all that editing stuff happen in the background is just like, it's just a massive time saver. With guitars, I don't want them super edited. Um, I can't, you know, I, I like quite a natural approach. I mean, a lot of it again will just go back to the tracking, really. You know, just making sure that that the takes are, are good. You know, sometimes 
I'll have um, I'll have uh, the guitars kind of lined up a little bit, especially if there you know there's like a stab section or something. Um, but generally, I'm, I'm not really doing too much. The, the less I can mess around with it, the better. You know, just uh, yeah. Just, I think that's a good a good way to be with guitars. Yeah. Um, okay, here's one from Miami Dolphin. Any the first thing he said is and is finally in all capital letters. <laughs> so he's been wanting you to come on for a while. Ah, cool. <laughs> um, so. Uh, Trash Boat Strangers has been one of my favorite mixes since I've heard it. What was your mindset going to the mix, and what did you do to get those guitars so lush? Um, I, I, it's, it's going back to what I said. I, I had a sound in my head, and I just chased and chased it until I got it. Um, it was, you know, I it was recorded really well. Um, I kind of um, just made sure everything had a space. Really, um, I, you know, I love how that record, you know, turned out. Um, I think it was a JCM 800 on the guitars. Um, and I, I just tried not to do too much, you know, apart from kind of get the, you know, use EQ to get it to sit down a little bit. Um, I very rarely compress guitars. I find I quite like guitars, you know, having a bit of room to play with um, dynamically. Um, so, you know, nothing crazy going on really it, just, it was again it was just getting the drums to sound good to begin with and then everything just falls on top you know pretty pretty well um so yeah nothing you know nothing strange going on with them just uh good source tone and you know just knowing when to not mess around with it too much i feel like lush guitars is one of those things that's also kind of hard to describe what they mean by that yeah. Um, do you have like so? Uh, I imagine. Do you know how to even define that word? Like, I know what I what I imagine it to be, but I imagine lush. I think of a peacock. <laughs> like, see, <laughs> I, I think of lush, and I think of a peacock and palm trees. Yeah. And and stuff, but I don't know what that's got to do with distorted guitars. I don't know. In Wales, lush means good. So. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. So. <laughs> so. Romesh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been oh, my pleasure. a pleasure talking to you. And uh, let's not wait so long next time. Yeah, let's do You know, I love what you guys do. So it was awesome to come on. So, uh, yeah, we'll do it again thank sometime. You. Yeah, maybe we'll do Nail the Mix or something. Too. Yeah, that like, sounds great. Uh, love to have you on. And I know that the, uh, I know that the uh, students would love that too. So we'll yeah, talk. Let's make it happen. We'll do it. All right, man. Take it easy. Awesome. Thank you. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by the 2017 URM Summit, a once-in-a-lifetime chance to spend four days with the next generation of audio professionals and special guests, including Andrew Wade, Kane Churko, Billy Decker, Fluff, Brian Hood, and many more. The inspiration, ideas, and friendship you'll get here are the things that you'll look back on as inflection points in your life. Learn more at urmsummit.com. To get in touch with the URM podcast, visit urm.com slash podcast and subscribe today.